Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Awesome. All right, let's pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of uh, hearing from your word. God, we thank you that your word is life. Your word uh, speaks to us even in this moment. Lord, we thank you for your holy scriptures. And God, we ask that even as we hear from your word and be instructed by your Holy Spirit, God, that you will give us the grace, empower us by heaven's resources and empowerment to live up to your word, to your statutes, to your values and principles. God, we ask in this moment that you will help us by your Holy Spirit to hear and obey. God, we thank you that in this moment you are speaking to lives, that hearts are being transformed by your word. So we say, you are welcome here. We receive your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that men men are not transformed by the eloquence of my speech or the depth of my research, but they are touched and transformed by your Holy Spirit. So Spirit of God, we say, have your way here. Come and meet us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as John mentioned, you know, we ran Alpha on Thursday. Come on. Alpha, that's always fun. We had uh, eight visitors, and uh, I think uh, on paper, good point. And uh, and on paper, we have uh, about another twelve to fifteen, uh, another four to five visitors that will uh, be joining us through the weeks, you know. And uh, Alpha is a is a really fun season for me because you know, I often, you know, I, I work in a church. I'm surrounded by church people, and uh, I spend a lot of time with y'all. And y'all are great, 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 great people. But one of, one of the things that I don't get to do very often is interact with people who are not of the, the Christian faith. And Alpha is a great opportunity for me to get out of my supposed Christian bubble and interact with people who may have differing beliefs and ideas. And um, so it's really fun. So I want to encourage you to do so you know, if you don't have an avenue to reach people who are not of the Christian faith. But um, in... Our first session at Alpha, I, I, remember, I spent some time talking to a guy and a, a gentleman. And um, the conversation was about whether God existed, you know. Just like, was, the question centered around whether God existed and what evidence there was to support that. And um, this guy in my conversation, he, he brought up a really interesting point. He said this, you know, Andre, if he, he said it in... I'm paraphrasing, but he basically framed it, framed the question as such. If there is a Christian God and uh, people who follow God profess to be Christians, then why do they live lives that do not match up to the God they profess to believe in? Basically, you're saying that, you know, I know of Christians who profess to believe in God, but yet they lie, they steal, they manipulate, they are involved with all sorts of evil vices. And then he asked me a question, if, if there is a God and these people are truly Christians, followers of God, then why do their lives look the same as the person down the, down the street? Why do they, their lives do not differ from people who do not profess to believe in a God? And that question really stuck with me, you know, and, and I remember I, I just conversed with him. And I, and I came to a, to a conclusion that it is possible for us to simply have a philosophical belief in God. And that means that, you know, we believe that God exists. We 
somewhat believe in the ideals, the, the principles, the values of God. We believe that Jesus existed as a historical figure. It is possible to just land at a purely philosophical belief. Agree with me? But there's another kind of belief, which I think it's the kind of belief that we are called to and admonish in Scripture to partake in. And that belief is a belief that will compel you into action. Think of the activist who is behind a cause. He doesn't just talk about a cause, but he reorients his life in support of that cause, in pursuit of that cause. And the Christian belief, our belief, the Christian faith, as believers, we are not just called to stop at just a philosophical belief, just agree, agreeing with historical facts, but we are called to move into a kind of belief that will compel us into action, where we reorient our lives in alignment to He who we profess to believe in. Am I making sense? Are you following me? We have to move beyond intellectual conclusions into a life reoriented to the ways, values, ideals, and purposes of God. Christianity starts and begins as a confession, but then it ought to permeate into the way we fundamentally live our lives. Our lives ought to look drastically different than that of a non-Christ follower. That is what gives us credibility as a faith community and attracts people to the saving beauty of Jesus Christ. I'd like to refer us to our, our passion statement. I don't have it up on the screen, but I trust by now you have it all memorized. Yes? Show of hands. Okay. Two of us. All right. <clears throat> our passion statement, it goes like this. We exist to help all people be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the works of Jesus in our city. Thank you for echoing along. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the works of Jesus. And a few weeks ago, we set uh, a trajectory, we set course, and we, we made the statement that whatever is being preached from this pulpit, every initiative we partake in, all of our resources are positioned towards these three goals, to help people be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the works of Jesus in our city. And today, I, I want to talk a bit about Goal number two, becoming like Jesus. And it's our goal that through our messages, we are able to identify aspects of the life of Jesus as well as the exhortations made by other authors in the Bible that we are called to embody. Today, I want to spend some time talking about one of those aspects. And what I'm going to speak on today, honestly, to me, has been the greatest tool of spiritual breakthrough, yet has been my greatest struggle. And uh, I've realized in my, in my faith that oftentimes the place of your greatest struggle is concurrently the place of your greatest authority. The Bible says is that instead of shame, he gives us a double portion. And the areas that we struggle in are often the platform, the stage to which God builds upon and gives us authority to move in. Amen? Today I want to talk about the power of your words. The power of your words. Proverbs 18, familiar passage of scripture, it goes like this. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Deuteronomy 30, 19, it says this. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Now, I said earlier that I'm going to cut the message in half, and so today I'm just going to talk to you about the death portion. And, uh, and two weeks later, you get the life part. So, you know, sit in that for two weeks. 
All right, are you with me? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. That is such a outlandish statement. That's such a big statement. That, that ought to draw our attention. That ought to perk our interest. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I think this is something that we all have to take seriously, that there's so much to discover in this truth. There are 800,000 words in the English language, but 300,000 or so of those are technical words or scientific jargon used only by a narrow range of specialists in various fields and disciplines. That leaves you and me 500,000 words from which to select as we communicate in our daily lives. Of course, nobody carries around a vocabulary of half a million words, maybe scholars. In fact, the average person knows only about 10,000 words. Feel better about yourself. And uses only about 5,000 in everyday speech. That's it. Just 5,000 commonly used words to communicate a universe of ideas, emotions, events, and desires. Yet those words, limited as they may be, carry enormous power. The power to heal or wound, to encourage or dishearten, to speak truth or to deceive, to praise or to criticize. How many of you have ever gotten into trouble because of your words? How many of you have gotten into trouble because of your tongue? Yeah, you know, I remember I was in Haiti. I was really curious. There was a plate of food. I didn't know what was on that plate. I saw something green and I just, something came over me and said, Andre, you need to lick that thing. And so I took it, I licked it, and it was one of the hottest chili peppers in the world. And I had a flight the next day, and so the whole flight, it was a seven-hour flight. I had diarrhea the whole way. <laughs> the tongue gets me into trouble, man. It's tempted. You know, I'm going to share the story of, uh, I hope this is okay in church, but, you know, I'm the pastor here, so, you know, Hey, <laughs> I'm going to share the story of the first cuss word I've ever said in my life. And I know, it sounds so impressive. Like, Andre is like, whoa, bad boy. But, <laughs> but uh, the, the story is not very impressive. Basically, you know, um, just in case you don't know that, I really, really struggle with uh, the, the Mandarin. I really struggle, you know. It's, it runs in my family. It's our DNA, you know. We are just predisposed to not thrive in... <laughs> Chinese classes, and I remember uh, once I was, um, I, this was when I was primary one, you know, we were, me and my friend, we were waiting for the school bus, and uh, the school bus was taking longer than usual, and my friend turned to me and said, Andre, you to ice pop, ma. So, in my head, I was like, oh, let me reply in Chinese, and so I wanted to ask him to go and buy it himself. So I said, like, ni chi. Then I don't know what the Chinese equivalent of buy was. And so I just used the English word. I said, ni chi, you know? <laughs> I don't know whether it's operate. But basically, so, so I was like, I'm primary one, you know, I'm a young, small, impressionable boy. I don't know all these bad words. And then my friend tells me, he's like, oh, you score bad word. And so he bought the school bus with me. And then when he reached my house, you know, I came down. And he came down with me and he told my mother. It's like, he scored bad word. And my mom put my ear, you know, it's like, where you learn this from? You know? And then you blame your older brother. It's like, go go teach me. <laughs> Perks of a middle child. <laughs> that was the first 
cuss word ever school, you know, it's not a very impressive story. But words, man, they get you into trouble. Can we agree on that? They get into trouble. You know, when uh, me and Axel were younger, we heard a similar teaching you know, on death and life being in the power of the fung. And you know, we, we heard it and we thought like, oh, you know, it's just a suggestion there. Really, would it literally mean life and death? I don't think it's that weighty. And we were young men. And um, I don't know, maybe our sense of humor then was a lot different. But I remember uh, an occasion where Axel turned to Christine and said something along the lines of like, hey, later careful you don't get hit by a car. And the next day, she really got hit by a car. And so we were like, whoa, okay, maybe coincidence, you know. And so Christine gets out of the, hos- gets out of the hospital. She wasn't warded, she just gets out. And then um, the next week, Axel said something along the lines of like, hey, careful you don't get hospitalized again. And then the, that very night, she had like a lung infection and she had to be warded in the hospital. So it's either A, Christine very sway, B, Exo very powerful, or C, there really is death and life in the power of the tongue. Are you with me? Which one is it? All three. Christine also very sweet. Just kidding. We struggle with the tongue, do we? Yes? Maybe not in that regard, but it could look like proclaiming curses on oneself. Oh gosh, I'm so stupid. Oh gosh, I'm useless. Oh gosh, why can't I get things right? It could look like swearing, you know? It could look like being nasty or crude or critical with our words. Regardless of where you are at in life, it's important to know that the Bible has a lot to say about the way we use our words. In fact, it seems to suggest that spiritual maturity is indicated by our speech. I want to start off by making two points. The tongue, if left unchecked, will be the source of pain, suffering, and judgment in our life. Next point, the tongue, if bridled and kept in check, will be the source of life, fulfillment, and abundance in God. I'd like to base uh, our sermon today on reading from James chapter 3. And I'd like to give you a bit of context about the book of James before we move on. The book of James contains the single most sustained discussion in the New Testament on the use of the tongue. The author of this little book would have been James, the half-brother of Jesus. It is clear that he is steeped in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament scriptures and also in the teachings of Jesus, to which his own teaching has many parallels. His first five chapters, okay, it's a really short book, okay, his five chapters constitute an extended piece of pastoral preaching, laced as it is with words of wisdom and warning. All along his goals is to lead his readers and hearers, men and women, who are possibly once under his direct pastoral care, but are now widely scattered to full Christian maturity, so that their whole being, without reserva- reservation, should be holy Christ. Much of what he says in this chapter that we're about to read is an ex- it's a powerful expose of the sinfulness, failure, and dangers of the tongue. As we arrive in chapter 3, James, through his writing, has already shown how spiritual maturity develops through response to suffering and two, how spiritual maturity is enhanced by response to the word. Now he goes on to show that spiritual maturity is evidenced by the use of the tongue. The mastery of it is one of the clearest marks of a whole person, a mature person, a true Christian. That's the background on the passage that we're about to read in James chapter 3. Eyes on the screen. 
Not many of you should become teachers. Wish I read that verse before I became one. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Oh no. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Very encouraging piece of scripture. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. I hope you are encouraged by the reading of the scripture. My sermon title for this morning is this, The Bit, The Bridle, and The Blessing. You clearly love rhymes, huh? Maybe I should rap. <coughs> That's a staggering piece of scripture that we just read. But I want to I break down bits and pieces, portions for you, and we're going to chew on it a bit, and we'll land a plane shortly before I take the plane. Okay, in James chapter 3, okay, James uses two commonplace but very vivid illustrations. He talked about the bit of a horse and the rudder of the boat. Let's put those images up. Just in case you know what the bit is, ta-da, that's a bit. Basically, it's what the horse, bite, the horse bites the bit. Okay, and he goes like this. He says that the tongue is like the bit of a horse. This tiny appliance, the bit, controls the enormous power and energy of the horse and is used to give it direction. James may well have been familiar with this picture from common experience in daily life. He had seen powerful Roman military horses and had probably heard stories of chariot races. The point, however, is the extraordinary power and influence concentrated in one small object. So it is with the tongue extraordinary power and influence that you can steer such a powerful beast. That same concentration of power in a small object is associated with the tongue. And he also goes on to say the tongue is also like the rudder in a boat. I remember I went... Timto, what do what, what, what you do? No, not kayaking. Uh, Stand-up paddleboarding, which is not something I wish on my worst enemy, but I remember... <laughs> I remember like, you know, just out of it. <laughs> I just light like a whale on the, on the board. I just like let the thing take me and, and I closed my eyes for a bit and I ended up on like the other side of the ocean. And so, you know, Andre doesn't do well with water. But okay, the tongue is also like the rudder in the boat. Large ships were not unknown in the ancient world. The ship that originally was to transport Paul across the Mediterranean held, the Bible says, 206 people. So there was a pretty sizable vessel. Yet such a large and heavy vessel was directed simply by a turn of the rudder. So it is with the tongue. The tongue is small, but its power, both for good and for evil, is out of all proportion to its size. What is James' point? 
with all that scripture. He's saying this, that the power of the tongue is disproportionate to its size. Though small, it is extraordinarily powerful. I'm pretty sure I have this fact right, but the most powerful muscle in the body is actually the tongue. Am I correct? Yes? I believe so. Though small, it was extraordinarily powerful. It is something not to be underestimated. That was James's point. Something small, insignificant, overlooked, can carry within it enormous power. But not just that, enormous destructive power. If you think I'm joking and you don't believe me, try stepping on a small piece of Lego. Your life will flash before your eyes. And Parents would know, you know. Yeah, that is true. Thank you. James goes on to highlight the destruction that can be caused by the tongue. Now in a series of vivid picture flashes rapidly across James's mind as he thinks about the power of the tongue, he describes the destruction power of the tongue as such. He calls it a fire, a world of unrighteousness, a stain, a restless evil, and in verse 8, a deadly poison. James shares the perspective of Paul when he said that the venom of vipers is under the lips of sinners. Psalms would even suggest that the throat is like an open grave where tongues can be used to deceive, whether suddenly or slowly, life is eaten away and destroyed by the careless use of the tongue. Let's look at another passage of scripture. I hope you're encouraged by the reading. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse 18. And this is a familiar passage of scripture. It's about Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. And just a bit of background on this verse, you know, it's surrounding story of a priest named Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of God's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. We find the story in Luke chapter 1 verse 18. Here we have that slide up. Okay, let me read to you. Okay, so just a recap. Zachariah, Elizabeth, very old, no children. Okay, verse 18. Goes like this. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? Basically, they were promised a child, and Zechariah was in a state of disbelief. He said to this angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I am an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years, which is something I learned that you should never say to your wife. In verse 19, it says this Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It is He who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. It's my belief that the judgment of God is never against us, but is always for us. The judgment of God is never against us. It's always for us. The judgment of God hinders. Uh, the judgment of God is against anything that hinders love and hinders His purposes, His promises, His will to be established. The judgment of God is always for our sake. Why was Zechariah silenced? It's my belief that if he won silence and if he were kept talking negatively, talking without faith, putting himself in a posture of disbelief and communicating as such that he would have aborted the promises of God. Life and death 
are in the power of the tongue. And my question to you this morning, even as we discover the power of the tongue, is this. How many promises in our life have we aborted because of our faithless words? Could it be true that we shortchange ourselves, we disqualify ourselves from the purposes and the promises of God because we choose to partake in faithless talking? Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Psychologist Cliff Noteris of Catholic University and Howard Markman of the University of Denver studied married couples during their first decade of marriage. They found a very subtle but important difference at the beginning of their relationships. Among couples who ultimately stayed together, only five out of every hundred comments made about each other were put-downs. But among couples who later split up, ten of every hundred comments were insults. The gap magnified over the following decade until couples headed downhill were flinging five times as many cruel and belittling comments at each other as happy couples. In their book based on Ponder Research, Notarius and Markman wrote hostile put-downs act as cancerous cells that, if unchecked, erode the relationship over time. In the end, relentless, unremitting negativity takes control and the couple can, can't get through a week without major blow-ups. It is a sobering thought that the single most reliable predictor of success or failure in a marriage wasn't how much affection a couple displayed, how many common interests they had, or what kind of economic background they sprang from. It was the kind of words they spoke to each other. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. <clears throat> you know, one of my limited talents, limited number of talents is that... Uh, I can speak fairly well, hence, you know, I have the, the mic. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've grown really good at is uh, holding an argument. And uh, I pride myself with that, you know, I'm like, I can argue and uh, I can, I, I once actually argued my, my way out of a speeding ticket uh, in the US. And so, I thought that was brilliant. And then I embarrassed myself by kicking up a bit. But anyway, I can, I can argue, you know, and, and, and I, I can hold myself pretty well in, in a, a back and forth conversation. And one of the things that I used to um, boast about uh, in the earlier years of our, our dating relationship with Amy was that I used to boast that Amy can never win an argument with me. And I used to go around like, you know, it's so chauvinist on Andre. Yeah, that was past Andre. Now Andre is different. But I used to go like, whoa. I will never lose an argument with Amy because it's for one of two reasons. One, you know, I can talk pretty well. And two, I think for the most part, she gives in to me. She's really nice. She's nice that way. And, and you know, I, I would honestly at, at one point take delight in winning arguments. Um, I remember occasions when we were in the heat of the battle and we were arguing. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that I was in the wrong but part of me, you know, the competitiveness, and I was like, and you know, I wasn't really good at sports, so maybe this is a sport to me. And, and I go back and forth as I, as I, I want to win, I want to win, I want to win. And, and I would argue points that I didn't even believe in just to win. And at the end of it, you know, I'm like, yes, I won, you know, when she apologizes. But, you know, even though I won in, in that sense, but I mean, know that I actually lost. Yeah? You know, in that moment, I lost connection with my loved one. And not only that, I think the most serious thing is that I lost my place and my footing in my divine assignment as a man who was supposed to empower, strengthen her, propel her forward. 
but instead using my words, twisting, manipulation, I belittle her and I make her feel less of a person. And I've, through my words, through my tongue, disqualified myself from my God-given assignment as a man who is supposed to empower her. And we can do that with our words. If you need repenting, you can just silently repent. I won't watch. <laughs> and something that I'm still growing in, you know, because it's so easy to win arguments sometimes. <laughs> the young revivalist Jonathan Edwards penned a number of resolutions around this theme, and they're worth noting. He goes like this, resolved never to say anything at all against anybody but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and feelings, and agreeable to the golden rule, often when I have said anything against anyone to bring it to and to try, and stickly, try it strictly by the test of this resolution. Resolved in narrations never to speak anything but the pure and simple verity, meaning truth. Resolved never to speak evil of any. And the last one, resolved, let there always be something of benevolence in all that I speak. Resolved never to speak anything at all against anybody, but when it's perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility, and sense of my own faults and failings. That is such a great resolution. Maybe we ought to learn, resolve to do better with our words, with our speech, with our tongue, with the criticisms we so often <laughs> disclaim to be constructive. In closing, I'd like to share three lies of the tongue. Three lies about the tongue. Now take us and I'll land the plane. Lie number one. You have a right to free speech. Lie number one. You have a right to free speech. Winston Churchill was famous for bluntly saying pretty much whatever was on his mind. One such recorded comment was in response to a lady, Esther, who told him, Sir, if you were my husband, I would poison your drink. His reply to her was this. If I may speak freely, Madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it. Snap, Churchill. You see, we celebrate stuff like, huh? Something's wrong. <laughs> so I bait you into laughing. Can I speak freely? It's a famous phrase in our culture. Another variation of that is no offense. How many of you know when someone tells you no offense, brace yourself, prepare to be offended because here it comes. When a person says these words, he or she usually is seeking permission to set aside tact and diplomacy and get brutally honest. In the words, can I speak freely? I use the term freely in the sense of at no cost. But is it possible to use words recklessly and indiscriminately without them costing something? David said this in Psalms 39, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle probably passed this wisdom on to his son because in Proverbs 6, Solomon wrote these things. He said, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet, feet that are swift, swift in running to evil, a false witness 
who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. Hate and abomination are strong words and in this list of seven things, there are an abomination to God. Three of them are sins of the mouth. Sins of the mouth. You know, I think there's a place for, for brutal honesty, but I'd like to release the truth of us. And there's this truth without grace is mean. But grace without truth is meaningless. Truth, if it's not flavored with the grace of God, the kindness of God, with the mercy of God, it is mean. It's like a clanging symbol. Never be received. But grace, if it is void of truth, the correction of the Lord, the statutes, the values, the ideas of God, it is meaningless. It's pointless. We are granted grace so that we may live up to what is truth. Line number two. This is going to kick some of you. If you are just kidding, it does not count. (laughs) Just kidding. I really didn't mean it. Phrases like, hey, I was just kidding. What's the matter? You cannot take a joke. Hey, I was joking. Come on, where's your sense of humor? Walao, you are so sensitive. (laughs) These are phrases commonly used by people who are trying to get... I don't say them. You say them. I'm just pointing out. (laughs) These are phrases commonly used by people who are trying to get off the hook after saying something mean, insensitive, manipulating, or insulting. I know, because I've used them all. Proverbs 26, it reads this, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. This is message. I'll move on to lie three. Lie three is this. Once your words are forgotten, their influence is gone. Once your words are forgiven, forgotten, their influence is gone. We read in James chapter 3, verse 5 to 6, it says this, Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire. The lie is this, once your words are forgotten, their influence is gone. You know, I, I, I'm sure many of us are aware of uh, you know, what's happening in... Uh, town called Reading, where I used to live in three, for three years while going to ministry school. And there's a wildfire that occurred there. And uh, at this point, uh, the fire has uh, burnt 80,000 acres of land. 80,000 acres of land in a span of a few days. Uh, last night, it doubled from 40,000 to 80,000 acres. Right now, the fire is 5% contained. What containment means is that it isn't spreading. And so 95% of the fire is still spreading into parts of town, into parts of the city. Uh, Reading is a town that has uh, 90,000 people living in it. And at this point, some 40,000 people have already been displaced and are seeking shelter. And so it's a terrible thing because I know of friends uh, personally who have lost everything. The house is completely burnt down and people are fleeing and uh, the air quality is poor. Now, I don't want to make light of uh, the situation, but you know, they've done a bit of preliminary uh, investigations and the news have already reported this, that they believe that the fire was started by a car malfunction that produced a spark that lit foliage, leaves on the ground on fire, and it produced this 
big wildfire that has affected so many people. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's an image I would, like, I would like to have imprinted in your heads. That though it might be a small comment, it might be something that you didn't really think about or consider when you said it, though it might be something that uh, you deem as insignificant. But a tiny spark, as insignificant as it may be, can produce a wildfire, a forest fire, that will affect many others. So is the same power accorded to your tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. The tongue reveals the heart. I'm sure all of us had the similar experience, but when I was a child, when I visited a family doctor, and I said, I'm, I'm having this, this, is this, he would say, open wide, and you stick a popsicle stick on your tongue and suppress it. And it's almost like magic. He's able to tell you what's wrong with you just by doing it. And I believe that's somewhat of a, a parable of a spiritual reality. What comes out of our mouths is usually an accurate index of the health of our hearts. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The state of a person's soul can be determined by the kind of conversations he engages in. John Calvin said this, the tongue exists to review the heart. The tongue exists to review the heart. I'd like to put up a last passage of scripture, second last passage of scripture, found in Matthew chapter 12. It says this, but I say to you, that for every idle word, in some translation, meaningless word, man may speak. They will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. I don't mean to scare you, but your words, you think that they may be passing and you know, they will fade away over time and fade away from the memory of others. But I can tell you that in that day, all your words, the things that you said, idle, meaningless, hurtful, critical, praise, encouragement, adoration, these words will be remembered. And you will give an account for that at the end of life. By your words, you'll be justified or condemned. Our words, our speech, our tongue reveals our spiritual maturity. I have to close off with one last passage of scripture. And this is really my, my prayer for all of us as a people, even as we learn to do better with our words. And uh, two weeks from now, we'll hear about life, the power of life that's found in the tongue, in decorations. You know, the Bible gives us so, much, so many good reasons for decorations. I might call that sermon, you are crazy if you don't talk to yourself. Talking to yourself is really important. But let me close with this final prayer. In Psalms chapter 19, verse 14, it goes like this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let me read that one more time. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. May we refrain from speaking evil and discover the power of our confession and discover the blessing and life that's in the tongue. Can we stand?